Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Why would a Jorah go through a crazy officer school? Is Robert just the nastiest goblin? And how many traps is Cat going to get baited into in this game? Well, there's only one company left, so... a buncha? Never back the precy in a corner, son. That's when the devil summoning starts, and it's all downhill from there. King Jahan of Kalo, addressing the future King Pater, the Unheeding. And the precy are nasty before the devil summoning starts. The first words of this chapter, fear not readers, this is a segue into the summary, you will not be lost. The first line of this chapter is, Snatcher had suggested we wait until sundown for the sneak attack. And this entire chapter is filled with sneak attacks. At least three by my count. We open up with more recovery, more finding their place after the double crossing of the double crossy double crossing of the double crosser, where one double cross double crosses the double crosser, and they establish themselves, figure out what's going on, and plan to take the tunnels to put down Wolf Company. Cat realizes that this is a subterfuge-style mission rather than overwhelming force, and so she sends her army to leave Snatcher's fortress while she and a strike team of the most important characters in the army plus another go in and take care of Aisha and her company. But on the way, blood debt is attempted to be collected upon, and we learn a bit about scrying on the way, and then they get to the camp, and everything really goes quite well until a surprise twist. But we'll get there at the end, I think. You say a surprise, but uh, yeah, okay, we'll get there until at the end. Until an inevitable <laughs> and obvious twist, because whom do we never bet against? Anyone but Ratface. Or Juniper. Uh, you'll find out. <laughs> True. Yeah. Chapter starts off with a cat relaying to us, the reader of whom she's definitely aware, um, that Snatcher suggested that we wait until sundown for the attack. It's common sense, sure. Wait, wait till nighttime to do a sneak attack. Great. But I have to say, this is instance number three? Four of somebody who Cat has either betrayed somebody else in favor of, and well, I, I say either. This is 
yet another example of Kat betraying somebody and then after doing that, listening to somebody who she assumes is going to betray her. Aisha had plans and Kat was just like, yeah, of course, I'll do whatever you say until I betray you. And now Snatcher's doing the same thing. It it really seems like she's just going to walk into every single trap along the way. And I don't know if that is her plan or if she doesn't understand that betrayals can go both ways still. I don't know. It's, it's such a weird thing to just instantly agree with everything that your co-conspirator is saying, given the mm, fraught alliances that have been formed so far this game. Though, shockingly, of all the people, the famously sly, the famously if I may make a pun on the tunnels, undermining Snatcher is actually the ally she apparently can most trust, since the betrayals in this chapter do not come from him. That's true. It turns out the only people you can trust are goblins. And you can trust them more than your own lieutenant. Or at least than the sexiest among them. Right. We, uh... Kat mentions that they're not in danger of officer attrition, like losing through running out of officers, because she's only missing one lieutenant, Ratface. And in relaying this information, she just absolutely drags this poor guy, deservedly, by saying that my only missing lieutenant was, once again, Ratface. It's... This guy got ambushed because Kat didn't foresee the way things were going well enough, more or less, and got taken out. And Kat is taking this moment with him absent to <laughs> make fun of him a little bit, mock him a little bit, complain about him. I'm not sure. It, it's it, it's internal, so it's fine. But it's definitely like, hey, Kat, this is your fault. <laughs> and this is Catherine we're talking about, who is extremely selfish with the blame most of the time. I, Radface deserves it, but it's beautiful however she has all of her officers obvious exception is obvious and she realizes that juniper likely is trying to take her out not by officer attrition but merely through the numbers game and she deems that this is wise of her considering i'd take quite a few legionaries to put me down if she cornered me badly enough and that's true enough catherine is the single most powerful individual on the field but two issues here one being We said last time, jokingly, but really, that quite a few legionaries to put her down is probably in the neighborhood of three, especially well-trained first company legionaries. She's a weak holder of a weak name without even all of her aspects. I want to say yet, but we know the story. But also, this is Juniper. When it comes time to take down Cat, it would be a crossbow storm with magical backup. She's not getting the chance to do anything, and she doesn't have ranged opportunities. Catherine is underestimating Juniper which is the last mistake most people make. Yeah, that's a pretty good point. There's very little chance that Juniper just says, all right, handful of legionaries, go fight the named by yourselves. Good luck. Like that. That's about the worst possible way to handle cats. So unless what Juniper What would has... Juniper know about named? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in speaking of that, it, there's... The next paragraph begins with Kat saying that Black has been pretty tight-lipped on general role lore. And I have to say, why? Like, she doesn't have a very powerful name, obviously, you know, transitional name. And Black is trying to train her to be his successor, more or less. He gets by. He's so as successful as he is because of knowledge of how roles work, you know, that's at a a level above most people, even most other named. 
you'd think that would be maybe the number one lesson you would want to be teaching uh, an up-and-coming apprentice name. I, I don't know. This is such a strange thing to be tight-lipped about. It is weird. And it makes me wonder if there's something about the nature of either apprenticeship in general or the sort of apprenticeship he's trying to craft for her, the way that experiences seem to shape the development of the name that makes him do this. Is there a reason you can't just impart lore because there's some elastic snapback because of um, a mimetic hazard from just knowing too much too soon and the story of forbidden knowledge falling on you somehow? Which feels weak, I know. Or does he just want to shape her name through additional struggle? Yeah, or not... is it bad writing? That's not the answer. <laughs> the second one seems the most likely, that it's a figure it out yourself and you'll be more powerful for it kind of situation. Though, in just a few chapters, we will be starting the updated Yonder version of the story. I'll be curious to see if this is still part of it, or explained, or completely unconsidered and unchanged. Yeah, there are... A lot of things that I'm very curious about when we when we get started there, but uh, well, first among them, how clenchy are those fists? <laughs> we really should have uh, been keeping better notes because now we're going to have to go back and listen to our entire podcast again as we're you know as a companion piece to reading the the yonder version. Like all of our listeners, I listen to every single episode of the podcast before working on the next. And I I, I definitely do the same. So anyway, um, we we get a little bit more information about struggle in this paragraph. Um, Kat talks about what it means or what she thinks it means. Um, and what she determines is more or less that it's an equalizer. She says, when I was outclassed, my name would put me on even footing with my opponent for a short amount of time. And later on, uh, as we get a little bit more information on how, uh, how creation nudges conflict between names to uh, advantage one or the other based on the the weight of stories we see that it's struggle kind of functions in that way just internally rather than uh, you know it's fully internal it's an aspect rather than being something that's put on the conflict by creation like an outside force because there's we see that it's sort of moments where things are just slightly in one person's favor where it's you have to take advantage of the slightest opportunity because as a name as somebody who's you know at the height of human capabilities and uh or yeah the, at, the, at the height of your capabilities you can capitalize on those those tiny if not mistakes those tiny opportunities those advantages that arise and it seems like struggle is basically at names version of that you get this brief moment where you have the advantage and if you don't take advantage of it if you don't use that to to your to the fullest benefit that you can it's more or less wasted uh it, you know the, the name's not doing everything for you it's giving you the chance to to win if you can seize that moment uh, and so it's it's i don't know struggle just feels like that idea that we see a lot kind of distilled down into an aspect for cat and so i just thought that was a, a, a neat little thing which means the argument in full is the special thing about Kat's name is that she's named with her name. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is spectacular. What are the limits on this? It, you know, we don't really know. It seems like if she's, because it's an equalizer explicitly, like it brings you up to your opponent's level, 
it's a more powerful aspect if you're facing a more powerful opponent, which obviously begs the question, and it's a slippery slope and all of those things, and these are definitely not fallacies. Could Cat just stroll up to the dead king and have a few moments to win that fight right now? Frankly? Uh, first of all, obviously not. But <laughs> frankly, the problem there is no fight book one Catherine wages against the dead king would be a struggle. I can struggle to move the heavy oaken desk I'm sitting at right now, but I can't struggle to knock the earth out of orbit. I can burn myself out on that, but struggling indicates some effect, doesn't it? Well, when a level three Rattata does it against a hundred Mewtwo, maybe not. But... Well, hold on. You said you can't struggle to move the earth out of orbit unless you have a place to stand in a lever, of course. Okay, Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Weird Ancient Philosopher References. We already have a May stretch goal. Don't don't <laughs> give us a new one until. Well, I mean, this, this is a this is sort of a sub podcast. Normally, yeah. normally it's only Diogenes, but today it's Archimedes. Diogenes and Archimedes. We each take a role, and then we discuss ancient Greek philosophy with no education. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Dibs on Dio. Uh, oh, really? You're hateful. <laughs> we were discussing the other week the difficulty with which Kat accesses any of her name power. The way she had to basically be on the verge of death against that ogre. Well, be at the threshold of. Be one false move away from death in that battle with the ogre. For her struggling to squeeze out a drop of power from the name. And here, when she considers her how she had leapt to the log in the last war game. She tells that she'd not been tapping into struggle. Instead, she says she was just making use of what little power my damaged connection to my name had made available at the time. Which is to say, while we still have to keep an eye on everything, it seems pretty clear to me that her total inability to access even the shreds of power to spark a sharper is from the damage to the name and not an artifact of her weak, nascent, malformed name. Not malformed, yet. So you're saying it's all her fault? The whole series is her fault. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd go that far. Yeah, but she'd like to in later books. Right now she wants to blame Ratface. Fair. The issue with her, really, is that by the end of it, she has the power to make sure everyone else is doing what she wants. Yeah, as she's kind of thinking through... She's doing a little bit of introspection here, talking about her... Uh, her name and what power is and the difference between soft and hard power and obviously cat's kind of a, a hard power gal and we get a, a moment where she's just brutally honest about who she is uh she says in the end i was not above imposing what i thought was right and wrong on others at the edge of a sword and this is just just cuts right to the heart of <laughs> who cat is frequently and <clears throat> excuse me sorry of who cat is and what is frequently just the the nature of conflict with other named who do the same thing, but being willing to just openly admit, yeah, I, I have a, a moral compass and I inflict that on other people at sword points. I mean, that that takes a lot to be able to just fully own up to that. So good on Cat. Not always at sword point, she says, thinking of her quote one foray into soft power which is when she'd convinced the lone swordsman to start his revolution. And she acknowledges that this is after she had beaten the hero first, 
But I want to remind everyone that her foray into soft power is when she had zombied herself, beaten this man to the threshold of death, and then had a momentary softening of heart, a momentary acceptance of offer of reprieve. And that, for Catherine, is soft power. She is basically a Hasenbach already. Yeah, soft power. That's when you win a sword fight, have your opponent at death's door, give them a line that makes it clear what you want, and then kick them off of a bridge into a river, right? Or off of a wall onto the ground. That's the one. And then kick them off of a wall onto the ground below, which we know is non-lethal. Just like Jean Valjean did to Javert. Exactly like that, yes. And that's that's soft power, baby. There's an interesting line that comes shortly after this where Kat's talking about the uh, claimant struggle, lowercase s, uh, that she went through for the squire name. And Claimant is spelled with a C. Oh, thank you. And I get it mixed up, you know, hard C, soft C, hard S, soft S, hard power, soft power. Um, and she thinks that it's almost as if the name were pitting different methods against each other to see which was the most worthy. And I, I, that's a, obviously Kat is not a perfect narrator. She's a moderately reliable narrator, I would say, but not a perfect one. And But if we take what she's saying here as at face value, we get a, a really a different look at how names work. It's not which story is the best or which story fits into the world most accurately or which, uh, which approach to the name is going to be the most likely to come out ahead so that the the gods below will uh, do better in their wager. All of these things. It's just which person and which method that they personify is the most worthy. Not exactly clear on worthy, you know, to what calling here, but it's, I don't know, it's a phrasing that we don't often see for named in the, in this light. And so I, I thought it was just a, an interesting thing that she came up with here. Uh, and I, I don't know, it's... It's a different way of looking at the struggle between names, or in this case, claimants. And it, in a, in an individual sense, kind of mirrors. I apologize for this, but worm alert. In worm, the way the powers, the agents, hit their skills against one another in what is ultimately revealed to be. Notice the spoilers, everyone. If you keep listening, this is your fault. In order to determine, in order to sharpen the skills for each generation of space whale the name by cat's estimation here is doing that to itself an interesting layer to your how how much agency and frankly how worm superpower like are the names I was gonna say that's a question that's going to come up a lot i think obviously these two works are not tied together directly but that theme i think we're, we're seeing a little bit of here and i i don't know i'm, I'm really curious to see now that we're paying attention, now that we're looking for it, how often that kind of thing will come up in the story. Uh, I don't know. As we keep our eye out, I need to learn a bit more about you, my dear co-host. Do you do a lot of archery? Do I do a lot of archery? No. I enjoy shooting a bow here and there, but I've done it extraordinarily infrequently. That's about right. And I, I have to say, in my experience with bows, I've gone through many arrows, but I have never had a bowstring issue, though I know bowstrings are hopefully more temporary than the bow itself. Catherine has a phrase here. She recognizes that Eris has acted upon her. There was the blood magic delay. There was the bad starting position. 
And then Catherine says, but that could not be the only string to her bow. Is is that a phrasing? I, I've heard of arrows in one's quiver. How often are bows restrung? I mean, so this is a it's a workable phrase, not a not a common one or a even one I've ever seen elsewhere, but you know, it, it's workable. She's got a bow. She's shooting dangerous arrows using the plans as the string. If a plan fails, if a bowstring fails, you have a backup. Sure. It is, it's a weird one. But, I mean, if you are an archer on a battlefield, you probably do carry an extra bowstring. So, I guess. I'm fascinated every day by the intricacies of archery. Whereas Catherine, unlike me, does not have a curious mind. As she's trying to figure out what the other strings to the bow may be, she thinks where the other one might be. Quote, so far she'd interfered through the college, which made sense. It was an old institution, one where her family was likely to have pre-existing contacts. Hickler had already killed my initial guess of her bribing one of the participating captives, which left outside interference. And look, there isn't some bribe controlling Juniper. We know that. But Catherine had the idea, maybe Eris will bribe someone. Pickler offered a reasonable rebuttal. No, that's not how it works. They wouldn't have a career in the Legions after that. And Catherine, without any examination, accepts it and moves on entirely with that as bedrock of her worldview. She did this when her watch folk began to disappear, and she decided it must be Juniper, even though Snatcher and, frankly, Aisha had good incentive to be behind it. Yeah, they weren't in prison in Aisha's camp, but you know what you do with them? You knock them out and leave them in the woods. You break all their limbs. They are nasty in these games. Catherine hits upon an idea and does not change it. Does she stay like this? You have to think she gets better, right? We we see a number of epiphanies on screen going forward. So, no, she doesn't stay like this, but it is rough right now. God's help her. She, uh, she's thinking about other ways that uh, Eris could be involved and she she says that Eris was good admittedly but she goes on to think that Eris isn't good enough to to pull one over on one of the calamities and not just one of the calamities of course but the black knight and this is a great line because the sentence ends too early there needs to be a yet in there <laughs> sure Eris is a is only the heiress right now and is young and is as talented as she is at all of these games is you know pretty inexperienced educated of course extremely well educated but inexperienced it won't be too long though before heiress is basically the best of the best in that realm so you know and enjoy it while you can Kat. and diegetically Catherine can't know that yet but diegetically heiress is the heiress as long as she's not a particularly mediocre or killed off early, but a particular mediocre example of the name, she's gonna become something fearsome, even if it's only middlingly. The Calamities are not gods, though knowing Catherine, that would just make her more likely to stab them. True. That all said, I've been talking about Catherine's failings a lot, and I would like to continue doing it, but now affectionately. Okay. I would like to quote, also please be ready, uh, as in all things, balance is paramount. It didn't matter, I decided, as I clenched my fingers tightly. Please add one to the count. However sharp the jaws of the trap my rival would have closing on me, I would pry them open and throw the whole bloody contraption at her head. She's going for such an elegant, if simple, metaphor. A jaw, the jaws of a trap closing on her, 
and even in metaphor, Catherine Fowling's response is, I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to chuck it at her. And I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, that's extremely cat, yeah. <laughs> she starts the game as a brawler in the pit. And even as she becomes the high priestess of a dark god at the end, she's still just a brawler. Yeah, a very good one, but yeah. The absolute worst kind? Mm, okay, so <laughs> the next uh, the next pair... The... The next paragraph, we get a little bit of uh, a little bit more information on healing magic, uh, which is interesting because kind of teasing out the limitations of different types of magic is always fascinating in a fantasy story. Um, first of all, Kat gives us a very insightful line here. Just we get a lot of information on on the world building when she says, "Getting trampled by a tenth of ogres was not something you recovered from in a day." Yeah, Kat. Thanks. Thanks for that one. Um, and then before she gives us a little bit of information on healing, she also says Killian's mages were fairly talented. First of all, how would Kat know? I don't gather that she's had a lot of experience with mages in general, combat mages specifically, and legionary mages even more specifically, aside from the one that she bull rushed and then Killian's mages. Also, we pretty we have pretty solid evidence that Killian's mages are not that great. I mean, for crying out loud, they're led by Killian. Hey, you have to remind me, which one is that again? Uh, One of the officers. I, there are a lot of yeah. them that don't show up. Right. Them, so. Can't really keep track of all of them. But Cass says, Killian's mages were fairly talented. They were nowhere close to the kind of ability you'd need to truly heal broken bones. Interesting. You know, you, in the first game, Cat breaks ankles as a, a method of keeping... Uh, soldiers out of the fray and now we know that that's a pretty hard limit apparently that it takes a, a fair bit of skill if these cadets are nowhere close despite being able to do the basic battlefield healing and fireballs you know it must take a considerable amount of skill to to mend bone magic works better on soft things i guess but uh you know just a, a nice little uh little detail about healing magic though it's important to note they can put the bones back together just not in a way that's good. It reads, right. they could put them back into place and patch them up, but any hard impact would break them right back and make them that much harder to heal the second time. Flesh could only soak in so much magic before it became saturated. Trying to push in sorcery past that point would lead to ellipsis. Bad thing. Oh, this, this is a lot of information about healing that I expect so the Grey Pilgrim doesn't have to abide by. Oh, of course not. So magic is basically like a marinade for flesh that also From gets really bad. On, I hope we refer to it only as the flesh marinade <laughs> for the sake of the listeners. Right. <laughs> uh, during this discussion, Kat and her officers are planning for how they're going to deal with Aisha's company. Um, we get the idea of sneaking into the camp and through the tunnels, all of this. Um, and... The plan here is to go for one of the victory conditions, one of the knockout conditions, taking out all of Aisha's officers. It's easier than trying to sneak in and beat up an entire company. And so Kat wants a small enough group that she can be stealthy, but a large enough group that they can do all of the officers simultaneously and not risk a bigger fight. And so for the five officers they need to take out, they are bringing five people, Kat and four others. And, you know, this is early on in the story. None of these people are named or whatever, so there's no 
significance there, but it's definitely for sure. But the what I'm getting out of this is Cat is a hundred percent wanting to rely on surprise here, not sending two people to each officer to make sure that they win the fight, but just gambling everything on we're going to basically fight a bunch of people who are maybe sleeping and win uh you know roll the dice and win or lose it's in this moment which given that she isn't named means it's going to work is that how names work well you see Catherine puts together a band of five only one which of always them has a name. yes right <laughs> name one band of five that has ever failed time's up please do not think about that any longer but wow, she brings yeah. in her four best people. She talks to Hakram, and he sends Nomusa, uh, Soninke he knows about, who packs a punch. She brings that one mage girl. She brings Nock, Sergeant. And then when she asks Pickler, she gets Robber. There is no way this will not go well. Pickler says, take Sergeant Robber. He's good at quiet work, and you won't find anyone better at taking out sleeping soldiers. The tone seemed to imply that the last part of that sentence had been a compliment. And I know Catherine regularly marvels at how awful goblins are, but here, in the war college, where they're taught practical victory, uh, yeah, Catherine, Robert being good at taking out sleeping soldiers is an unmitigated positivity. That's... So the last war they fought, they beat all of you by taking out everyone <laughs> while they were sleeping on the fields of Strigey. Mm-hmm. After sailing across a river, if I recall correctly. Something like that. I don't really do history. Yeah. Historians <laughs> are boring and uninteresting people. True. But yeah, it, she asks for recommendations and Pickler immediately throws out Robber. I don't know why Kat didn't say from the get-go, it'll be me and Robber. Do you have any other, ex- you know, any other suggestions, officers? Like, why was Robert not just the come? automatic? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, even just a, hey, I'm going to send Robert to go kill five people. Anybody else want to go along or should we all just hang out here? Because let's be honest here. It's Robert. The only the issue with sending him out to kill five people is hoping that he doesn't go too far. <laughs> exactly. I wonder if you lose points if you accidentally literally kill everybody in a company because one of your goblins got a little too excited. Well, you have to understand there's only one sin. True. True, true, true. Catherine does, however, stake a lot on this. She's going in with two sergeants, a lieutenant, and, you know, herself, the captain. And if anything goes wrong, this could go horribly, horribly crookedly really fast. And she says, all or nothing, huh? Should I be worried how often that ends up being my play? Yes, she should. But more than that, Kalernia should be worried about how often that's your play. Honestly. <laughs> In some direct ways, you can kind of blame her for the loss of most of the lives of the Principate, most of the lives of the war age population of Callow, and the death of the Empire. Of the Principate? Are you throwing... Of most, you say most of the population of the Principate. Are you throwing the invasion of the Dead King at her feet exclusively? Because I respect that stance. That's what Catherine would want. <laughs> True. <laughs> and let's be real. It's Catherine's enthusiasm for her task that sees the gods always turning on her. Yeah, and she actually picks up on that. She's aware of that at this point. Um, she talks about how the plan for dealing with um, Wolf while 
potentially the hellhound is dealing with Fox Company's defenses and she's getting a better position. And that's the best outcome she could hope for, not an, an outright route or anything like that. Um, and she says, because that's the, the best I could hope for. And so that's what I'm going to aim for. And she immediately says, not that there's any chance of me getting there now, since just by thinking that, more or less, she's saying that she's inviting the gods to ruin her plans entirely. And uh, yep, Kat, that's how literal reality works in, in your in, in creation is saying things like how much worse could this get or at least it couldn't get any worse or anything like that is guaranteed to make things worse for you and saying this is my best case scenario and we're going to achieve that same thing and you know she's learning she's also learning not to trust entirely blindly she knows that leaving her remaining soldiers behind enemy lines amongst the craftiest people around in a fort in a fortress where frankly it's not unlikely that there are traps all over that the creatures are just walking around. Mm -hmm. She knows her people are going to need to get out of there. And that's something that works out for Snatcher too, because taking them out while they're there, probably very doable. Taking them out when they're outside the walls, way better. Everyone wins. She'll send her soldiers away after she's gone. So she just needs to, you know, schedule a time for that. And there we get into a really fascinating thing. So we don't have clocks apparently uh they don't deal in minutes they don't deal in seconds or hours we get bells of course um as pretty a pretty standard unit of measurement uh a time measurement here um but cat to make her plan says wait 15 hails h-a-i-l-s and people <laughs> in the the praise around are understandably confused by this term because it comes from the amount of time it takes to recite a hymn and cat doesn't know how to translate that into local time and so uh one of her lieutenants somebody with red hair apparently goes through a few moments to make some conversions and says yes 15 hails is roughly equivalent to six basic line drills this is phenomenal we don't have like i said there's not okay wait 20 minutes and then do this or half hour and then do this it's bells if you need to measure very long stretches of time and then honestly whatever you can cobble together from local customs anything where there's a standard practice you use that as a unit of time basic line drills the amount of time it takes to do a hymn this is phenomenal i, I love this as someone who entirely honestly and to a strangely fervent degree is irritated by the existence of standardized time and politically opposed to the project, good for them. I was wondering which of us was going to bring up that we don't like modern, that we don't like time, <laughs> standardized time. Timekeeping so separates us from reality itself. We are alienated <laughs> from our humanity. Amen. The agricultural revolution was a mistake. That's where it all started. Truly, fully on board. That aside, as they get ready to head out, <laughs> Catherine corners um, uh, Pestrel, and says to her, there's a thing I'd like clarified before we head into combat. I've heard you can be incapacitated if you draw too much on magic. Something about creature blood? And Kesha says, or, and Kesha sighs, her fine lashes fluttering over her hazel eyes. Oh, maybe a moment of attraction here? Maybe a, we're acknowledging her eye color, maybe. But mm -hmm. she sighs and says, Hakram, in a resigned tone, as though this is an embarrassing or private or otherwise 
distasteful matter, private matter being brought up where it oughtn't. And fam, this is important. You are a soldier in charge of doing magic. And when your magic goes wrong, you go wrong in a special way. Your commanding officer should know. She she treats it like Hockerm told Kat a little rumor about herself. And it's it's like, exactly. You can't, this isn't a secret that you get to keep in the military or in a party or in a, anything like this. This is, she, she takes a very strange stance here, for sure. And then when it's not Hockerm, in fact, she mutters angrily about the person who it was, you know, knock. And, you know, as though, again, it's his fault for her magic being weird. But she brings up a, a little a point. She refers to him as a failed berserker, um, which I, we've heard we've heard about a berserker before when uh, he first revealed the red rage to Cat. You know, he was crawling on an ogre. Um, like you do. You know, like you do. Uh, and... There was a distinction made there. There's the red rage that some orcs apparently get, where you lose control and just start uh, shadow of the colossusing anybody around. Um, and then there's berserkers who are who have some kind of similar thing that they can control. And it turns out that maybe they're the same thing, and it's just berserkers learn how to control it and at least aim it, maybe. Uh, so that that's a little uh, interesting thing. Do we? Off the top of my head, I don't recall. Do we see a an actual berserker, like an orc berserker, at any point, or is the red rage only ever really a knock thing on screen? I don't recall seeing it. Though when we get to the warlord audition arc, yeah, we should pay attention to see if anyone's credited with that, or maybe right. seen as ineligible because of that. I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember because there's not much fighting. So we're uh, you know other than the duels. So we're not going to see probably a berserker in action. So yeah, maybe a title or a claim or something. I, yeah, I'm I'm curious. We'll have to we'll have to see about that because I I don't I'm I'm very curious about these berserkers and what they look like. And I feel like we don't ever truly see them. I suppose there's a chance that in the uh, uh, when the orcs roll up on Prace to help Cat out. We, you know, well, when the when there's actually to, an orc to army help involved, matters out. We'll see. All right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> true, true, true. Uh, there's a chance we see things there because it's like the actual orc military. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. Uh, Cleo says like he's one to talk. The bloody failed berserker. And Catherine replies with, "I don't mean to pry into personal matters. Not strictly true, but I figured I might as well pretend not to be nosy. I just want to know how it might affect things." She's tiptoeing. When she has the authority, the right, and honestly, the personality to just bluntly say, tell me what's relevant here. Yeah. Cat. Carla is fully in the wrong and Cat <laughs> dancing around the issue. We, uh, we get the first little bit of information and we find out that her grandmother was Faye. Um, and at this point in the story, that's an, you know, when you're reading this for the first time, you can say, oh yeah, the Faye, you know, those weird forest critters that uh, sure they get with some humans sometimes and there's half fey whatever but knowing what we know about the fey in this setting is it also weird to you that there was a fey creating offspring with a human not that long ago like does that that feels like a really big deal right i am not historically terribly invested in fairy stories in our world and our mythographies I'm 
the kind of person who knows about the existence of some cosmologies having the sealy and unsealy courts, but I don't really know what they are or why. That's where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. And I know that our stories and the stories of the guide often echo with each other, but are not the same. Very plainly not. But the best I can come up with for fairy breeding is maybe a changeling thing. And so my grandmother was one of the fae, means my grandmother was born normally, but replaced and was actually a changeling and thus was fae, but like a humanish fae. Yeah, I mean, the fae we see just aren't really that kind of like trickster spirit, you know? No. They're like... They're messy. They're like gods of war. <laughs> they just roll up and are the best. They're, I, it, I don't know. They're, it's odd to me that one would stoop to the level of having a child with a human. Uh, I don't know. It, it's, I wish we had more information on this lady's lineage. <laughs> Though, throwing good questions after bad, I'm curious now. Your phrasing, you said having a child with a human, not any other phrasing about acquiring the child and i'm actually curious for such a story-based creature would it be possible that a fade just because of things just because of story just because of whatever they're weird but has a child rather than produces a child makes a child eh, yeah i'm really spitballing here but yeah it invites I, questions sure yeah if anybody listeners if you have an idea even just a guess i would love to hear it this is interesting to me i'm curious what's going on here email us at thelongprice at gmail.com or follow our twitter at thelongprice the fae are interesting however because catherine has little context she says like the ones in the waning woods and killian says i forget your callowin the fae are not popular around here even in the green stretch and, and Catherine blithe yeah. about it. <laughs> Cap more or less just shrugs and says, yeah, they kill Calwins too if you're stupid about it. You know, there's dangerous places and you don't go there or the Fae get you. But she does include just a, a sprinkle of uh, a reference to a favorite character and says that they don't wander out, the Fae don't out of, wander out of the woods, and the path to refuge is supposed to be safe because it, nobody is going to mess with the path to refuge, obviously. <laughs> That's pretty much a constant at this point. You know, we get a nice little, nice little wink there. Well, amusingly, she disregards the death of the Callowins they kill because, you know, they kill Callowins whenever one's stupid enough to go too deep into the forest. Remind me what happens to Catherine's current heart. That's her, all. Her... <laughs> yeah. You know it's good when you have phrasing like that. Yeah. But all of that aside, all of the questions about what the Fae are aside... It turns out having one in your lineage is kind of beneficial in some ways. Catherine says they never wander out and the path to refuge is supposed to be safe. To which Kevin says, the benefits of having a former calamity ruling your city. Two notes here. One, former calamity? Admittedly, the word is capitalized here, but I wasn't aware Ranger had lost her status as a calamity. And even if she isn't one of the calamities, she is a catastrophe of a woman. She is a calamity. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, that's very true. More so than just about anybody. But secondly, the benefits of having a former calamity ruling your city. Am I misremembering that refuge is 
a couple about, of tents in the yeah. woods where an in, where an immortal woman abuses children. Yeah, there are seven tents in a circle, and you fight each other, or a ranger gets mad at you. It's a city. Can you give me the benefits of uh, whatever again? Uh, all of the sort of this context aside, it turns out there are a few benefits to having a fey ancestor. Admittedly, Cassandra's blood is pretty diluted. Cassandra's fey blood is pretty diluted, but she still gets some things out of it. Mostly the unusual hair and some mage tricks that require control beyond what most humans can manage. Great. I'd love to see them. What are they? Do they come up? I may be forgetting. She throws a fireball really high a couple chapters ago. You know, I must admit I have never thrown a fireball really high. So there you go. That's what you get. The other thing you get is apparently uh, when Karen does too much magic, her body tries to make wings. And uh, that's a fun way to phrase that. It's not I grow wings or there's magical equivalent. No, my body tries to make some. Uh, What a wonderfully evocative and understated piece of body horror. Yeah, it's not great. And then after this conversation, Catherine says, but you know your limits? Learn them the hard way. All I needed to know. And then they get ready to go away. They're about to do the mission and all. And then Kendall calls out, Captain? Catherine half turns to meet her eyes. Lieutenant? Thank you, she said, looking away. Is she just that mistreated? Because what, what, what did Catherine do? She said, hey, I found out something about you. That might be relevant. Tell me about it. Okay, understand more. Are you okay? Can you handle it? Good to know. Thank I mean, you, she said, looking away. It, this, is this a case of thank you for not being a horrid racist about this, maybe? Like, thanks for not immediately... Racism uh, in I mean, the world. I know it's genetic characteristics and all, but... So sanguinism. Frankly, she's not a full-blooded human, but, you know, neither is Catherine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cap meets with... Uh, Snatcher again to go over the last details of the plan after her conversation with Callie. Um, and they go back and forth about some of the timing issues. And then uh, Snatcher says that it has been a pleasure to work with you. And Kat sa- responds the same to you and is somewhat surprised to find that she meant it. And, you know, Kat's a half orc, as we know, and respects the orcs that she's growing close with, you know, Nock and Hawkram, but she is just in love with goblins. Sure. She acts like she hates Robert, but I mean, that's just the games that they play. Pickler's great. And she meets Snatcher and is instantly like, this guy's great to work with. I like him so much. Pat just loves goblins there. She's so close to being one. It's great. We know she's half orc, but I can guarantee you, in all honesty, the text never calls her half-human, so... <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. Yeah, good point. But she really likes Snatcher. He was a pleasant enough sort, and by far the politest goblin I'd ever come across. And admittedly, yes, goblins are, frankly, nasty little chaos elementals. But then she runs down the list of the most unhinged people you will ever meet. She says, talking with General Sacker had been like having a knife at my throat the whole time. That's General Sacker. I couldn't help but think that Pickler was only ever half listening when I spoke. Yes, because she's in love with one thing and one thing only, and that's engineering. And the less said about Robber, the better. Uh, yeah, 
that's my boy. That's how <laughs> yeah. it goes. And just to give my dear child his time in the sun, Catherine goes on to say, I enjoyed the malevolent little sergeant, true, but if he ever met politeness in a dark alley, he'd knife it and rob the corpse. And Snatcher seems to share the respect. He says, all of the Jorah attending the college show promise. It's a shame that so few of you actually serve in the legions afterwards. And I thought that orcs were like a major part of the legions. Is it just only the clans and not the orcs from Daina or? It must be. It must just be a like distance thing. That's a long way to travel to get to the college. So That's fair. And I think there's like a wall in the way or something. I forget. Yeah, I mean, you know the stats. Most people tend to go to a college within 50 miles of their hometown. And also most people tend to go to a college on this side of the wall from their hometown. You know, it it's just statistics at play here. I went to college 71 miles from my hometown. So, you know, I'm like Catherine. I'm basically Catherine Foundling. Please be careful. I went to college 1,300 miles from my hometown. So you're Ranger? I'm more like Kara, since she's probably from the fey realm the arcade <laughs> that's right she's from the arcade the cool arcade but at least we do get to find out what the platform is for the tower <laughs> the big mysterious tower in the center is an artillery platform snatcher is building a ballista uh he kind of reveals that to cat through talking about the special uh, uh supplies that he took from the stocks and cat Ever, the rule follower says, I thought siege weaponry was forbidden. And Snatcher, in the with such a rules lawyer vibe that's great for a goblin, says, bringing one is forbidden. The regulations say nothing about building one. Which is to say, I think in the next chapter we're going to see that Snatcher is riding a golden retriever into battle because the rules don't forbid that. He's very cool. I can't wait to see how he develops over the course of this series. And uh... you know what? He also enjoys humility. He admits, quote, I must admit, the ballista we've cobbled together is rather crude. And if he had just had Pickler, can you imagine that power couple? In a purely platonic <laughs> sense, because again, Pickler's only attractions are to the art of engineering itself. Yeah, Snatcher with Pickler at his side would have been unbeatable. I wanted Wait. to correct you about Pickler at his side, but no, actually that's the role Pickler wants to fill. And Cat with Pickler at her side is also an, is Pickler the key to everything? Yes. I'll just answer that myself. Yes. And realizing what she would have been up against if they had actually fought Snatcher, Catherine says, Catherine thinks. Thank all the hells I hadn't said. Ooh, not the heavens. Just all noting the hells. that she's she's moved on to full embrace of her damnation. But she thinks, thank all the hells I hadn't stuck to my original deal with Aisha. It would have been a bloody route. And that is a very interesting portrayal of who stuck or who broke the deal. Yes, Catherine was going to, but oh, good thing I didn't stay on Aisha's side when she pinned me against Juniper. Yeah, I, there's definitely some questionable memory going on here, some questionable understanding of history going on here. Cast your mind back one week. I have done so. Do you remember that I asked you, you, listenership, you, my esteemed co-host, to remember that I'm I just noted a name with you. Chapter 25, Snatcher's Plan. We see the goblins get back with a large dead goat and an extra goblin. It's a special tool that's later in the chapter. <laughs> and Robber says, fresh meat for the next meal, Captain. 
Hatcher stuck a knife in its neck before it even realized she was there. The female goblin he'd just provided me the name for shuffled on her feet, obviously uncomfortable with the attention. That's Hatcher. Apparently, there are more Hatchers. I've received praise from some tabletop RPG players I've had for reusing names within cultures because that's how things work. I am not the only person of my name in the world. But here we see the goblin guide they are given through the tunnels says, my name is Hatcher, he informed us curtly. Apparently there are more Hatchers, and apparently at least that name is unisex. Though to my eye, all goblin names seem unisex, but that's to my foreign eye. I'm not going to begin to pretend. Maybe Hatcher is gender neutral in the goblin language, and they translate into com or into uh, Lower Meetsen when they go into non-goblin areas and maybe the name robber is only masculine or the name pickler is you know who am i to say but apparently hatcher has been used for goblins of different sexes and then of course you know we know that this world wonderfully includes trans folks so oh well yeah i mean we don't know anything but we've right. got cool pieces of info for sure among goblins i would have expected compared to just about any other people group whether culture or race or anything they would have strictly defined gendered names because of who the goblins are like i would have expected that there wouldn't be unisex names but you know here we are it's neat hatcher is not only a name any goblin might bear but is in fact also a true goblin as he brings a chaotic and frankly deeply violent element to the tunnels yeah he's going to be guiding cat and her band into the enemy camp through the tunnels and sends off everybody else except Kat and leads her personally into a dead end so that he can try to kill her in revenge for Chider. And Who is Chider in again? One of the claimants for Squire. The goblin oh, claimant specifically. Yes. And we get such a goblin move. He's in this tiny tunnel that's small even for Kat somehow. And he doesn't pull a knife on her or, you know, cause a cave-in on her. He pulls out a grenade. He pulls out a sharper yeah. in a tunnel. <laughs> this man is dedicated and is also extremely a goblin. Brutal, absolutely brutal stuff going on in this tunnel for to begin this, this little uh, botched assassination attempt slash scuffle in the dark. But despite his great distaste for Catherine, he still recognizes the goblin in her. He compliments her. Catherine realizes he's talking about Chider, and his only response is, murderer! Which is high praise. There's kind of this fight going back and forth here with compliments being thrown back, you know, between the two of them. It's great. And Cat says that she's confused as to why he would try this, because there's no way he's going to get away with it. The college is scrying everything that's going on, and we find out you can't scry underground, uh, which is apparently common knowledge, as Hatcher just knows it offhand and calls Cat ignorant for not knowing it. But yeah, there's a, a nice limitation on scrying. It doesn't work underground. I don't think I can do anything with it. I just want ignorant sow, rubies before piglets. I didn't get anything. <laughs> uh, there's, there might be something there. But following this... Uh, Cat realizes, oh, whatever I do down here will be consequence-free free then. And 
she talks to Hatcher, but is really talking to herself because she doesn't provide him any context. As she moves forward to uh, break his neck with her bare hands, as you do, she says, You know, the first time I met him, he told me it didn't get easier. There's no antecedent for any of that. She just delivers that line, which is, I gotta say, an incredibly metal way to be moving forward to break somebody's neck to drop that line followed by the uh the line that she delivers after doing so it was i decided a very kind lie and then for some reason she closes the cadet's eyes she picks up her sword she turns around goes back the way she came thinking about what a stupid meaningless way it had been for that cadet to die and she leaves the sharper behind she they're hurting for sharpers and that can take out a couple of troops in a game where people are maxing out at 100 troops. Catherine, I, I know you just murdered the guy, but take the sharper. Well, the problem here is you're forgetting a very important thing. Kat's working on building her reputation, not just with people, but with reality itself. And part of her reputation is being very, very cool. And as we all know, cool guys don't look at explosives. That is so true. Yeah. And I really dislike when you're jokes really do actually hold up to scrutiny it's the worst thing well, that was the yeah. impersonal you i yeah. hate when jokes in general work yeah i i feel you so cat then gets into the camp uh following the tunnel that uh, uh some of the other officers went through and moves to try to find aisha and she finds her tent and it's guarded by two orcs and Kat notes for us, orcs, and not small ones either. Do we ever see small orcs? Was she hoping for small? What's a small orc? I mean... Catherine. Okay, you got me there. All right, fair enough. <laughs> yes, these are not these are not Catherine-sized orcs. <laughs> uh, all right, I stand corrected. There are small orcs in the story, at least one. But even these big orcs are not too powerful. Catherine sneaks forward, and the alarm doesn't ring. This might go as planned. And as she thinks that, of course. A horn sounded a heartbeat later, and I decided that if I ever came face to face with a god, I was going to stab it somewhere painful. And, uh, you know what? I think that sentence is just going to be presented without comment. Remind me, why didn't Catherine take the sharper? Because cool guys don't look at explosives? Ah, yes, she's so cool. So, after she gets Bishara, the guards come for her, the troops come for her, and an orc says, I'm going to take this out of your hide, rat. And that was her cue to make a daring escape. I kicked the tent pole I'd managed to position myself next to. It did not fall. And we just get such a like low-level comedy response that's still absolutely hilarious in the moment. The pole doesn't fall, and I can just picture this scene of Kat looking at the pole and then looking at the legionary that came in, and her comment is dug into the ground huh bummer it's it's the height of i don't know quippiness i guess in a in a very good way now we know that calowins say bummer i'm glad people need to say bummer more often including calowins real bummer they don't <laughs> shortly after this we see uh we hear and see the fact that wolf company has been knocked out uh the raid was successful cat and Snatcher's plan has worked flawlessly, and there are no notes, right? Um, yeah. They took the camp without any issue. 
Mm-hmm. But it turns out Snatcher didn't do anything to First Company. The camp seems undisturbed, except that they don't have any patrols, which means maybe First Company is taken out too, right? Cat guesses accurately what's going on, and uh, the the last couple of sentences of this chapter are, Slowly, I felt my stomach sinking, and I turned my eyes to Fox Company's walls. In the distance, over the fort's ramparts, a standard bearing crossed silver swords flapped lazily in the night breeze. Well, I said, that's going to be a problem. Another excellent line by Cat. And also, come on, Juniper. is Juniper is just not fair. <laughs> There's this nighttime raid, and she takes that as an opportunity to swiftly and apparently easily and mostly silently take a fortress from the fortress specialist alone instead of with the allies that she, you know, ostensibly was expecting to have. <sighs> Juniper is just, she's unfair. And she's the character who later on has a funk about not being good enough. To yep. everyone who experiences imposter syndrome, you don't deserve to. You're not good enough to feel imposter syndrome. Juniper did. So get over yourself and be great. You're not a real imposter. I think maybe we've gone a bit far here. Yeah, I think we probably have. So that might be about where we need to wrap this up for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... Morok's Revenge. I shan't have done that. And Ratface's ex. Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Orchestral Waltz by Music for Videos. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 27, Callow's Plan. Music